This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Welcome back, everyone, to World to Win. I'm Toya, and I know you're expecting to see Yara on screen with me, but this week we're changing it up a little bit. So today we have Dara with us. Now, Dara, let me tell you a little bit about him. He has been on World to Win a lot. You've just never seen him. He's been behind the screens. I know Dara, he used to live in the US. He left us, unfortunately, and moved to the UK. Yara met him and we were like, you know what? Let's bring Dara on. He's great, he's funny, he's so smart. He does a lot of work for World to Win. So with that introduction, Dara, welcome to World to Win. Finally, you're here with us. How have you been? Good, yeah, good. Jesus, that, that's some introduction. Um, I don't think I can, I can live up to that. And probably a bit more comfortable uh, on the other side of the camera, but delighted, delighted to be here. Well, everyone's expecting you to tell jokes, so make sure you, uh, you prepare for some. But I'm so glad to have you here today. Our first guest this week is Gert, who is the editor of the ISA paper in Belgium. We're called PSL there. Gert, welcome back. How have you been? Thank you. I'm fine. What have you been up to lately? Well, the 8th of March was uh, quite impressive here in Belgium with uh, the protests we helped to organize. And we immediately after the 8th of March produced um, an anti-war issue of our paper. So it's been, we know how to fill our days. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned anti-war because I forgot to even say what this episode is about. This is our fourth episode in a series about the war in Ukraine. Um, so I'm glad you're able to talk with us uh, today, Gert. And then we also have Connor on. Now, Connor is the host of the Revolutionary Ideas podcast. So I'm very excited to have him on today. I, I love your show, Connor. Um, so what have you been up to recently? Uh, other than recording Revolutionary Ideas, um, I've been uh, very involved in some of the protests that have been happening over here as well as part of the anti-war movement. I think this is something that is, uh, you know, incredibly important that we talk about um, here today and, you know, that we're engaging in um, on the streets as well. And I'm also looking forward to hearing these jokes from Dara. <laughs> yeah, a lot of pressure for Dara today. Um, so, yeah, like I said, this is our fourth episode on the war in Ukraine, which um, I'm sure everyone has been watching, you know, whether that be uh, reading about it, seeing it on social media, following very closely. It's, it's a scary time. Um, and, you know, over the course of the past few weeks, we've discussed the war in Ukraine from different angles. We've discussed the roots of the war. Um, we've discussed how it's taking place in the context of the capitalist crisis um, and the sharpening of the inter-imperialist tension. So if you haven't seen those episodes or listened to them, make sure you go back um, so you can hear our full analysis. Um, we've also discussed the type of anti-war movement that is necessary to really fight back um, against war in general and specifically this war. Um, and throughout these episodes, we've touched on how the socialist movement has confronted the question at war at different times throughout history. Um, but today we wanted to do a more full episode to talk about some of the rich lessons and the relevance um, of, you know, uh, the socialist fight back anti-war movements and a Marxist analysis um, to fully better understand the situation today. So I want to start um, with you, Gert, um, talking about, you know, uh, sorry, I'm going to do that one again. Hold on a second. 
So I'm going to start with you, Gert. You know, the explanations for wars, you know, in the past and the present that we hear from media and from establishment politicians, um, you know, tend to be more superficial. For example, when we learn about World War I, um, you know, they talk about it was the assassination of that Ferdinand guy. You know, World War II was um, fighting the Nazis, good, evil. Um, you know, and there's countless other imperialist invasions that are justified as, you know, defending democracy and um, fighting for human rights. But as Marxists, you know, we look to more profound historical forces to explain these events. For example, French socialist Jean Jaurès wrote over 100 years ago that capitalism carries in it war just like clouds carry rain. So, Gert, can you explain what exactly he meant by this and how Marxists understand war as, a, you know, a natural outgrowth of capitalism? Yes, well, it's, it's not only socialists who recognize that war is the continuation of politics by other means. But of course, socialists point out that the capitalist system and all its contradictions are the political basis and that those contradictions are leading to war. So it's not the work of one madman or uh, one people that would be in, in itself more into war. It's, it's the whole system. And that's important for us that it's for us. It's not separated from class and from social relations of society, war is rather an expression of it. And when Jean Jaurès made his statement, uh, when he explained that uh, capitalism carries war in itself, like dark clouds carry rain in itself, in fact, that was the position that was official in the socialist movement before the war. The difference is Jean Jaurès, he continued to say it, at the moment when it was clear that the war would break out, um, at the moment when most of the others in the socialist movement, they had forgotten what they had voted on the international conferences. For them, it was only in words that they were against the war. For Jean Jaurès, it was clear. It was more clear uh, that uh, stopping the war would also mean not only accepting that capitalism leads to war, but also putting a solution to it, saying that the working class should oppose the war by all possible means, including general strikes, including armed revolt, uh, and so on. That was not accepted by the majority uh, in the socialist movement, who would later betray uh, the movement. Now, Jean Jaurès was not a revolutionary Marxist. He was an honest socialist who opposed the war. He was murdered just before the start of the war, because he took a, co a consistent uh, position, um, but it's clear that his ideas were a bit isolated in the movement uh, on the other, at the moment that when the war started. On the other hand, revolutionary socialists like Lenin, Trotsky, Luxembourg, Liebknecht, Zetkin, they all continue to defend that internationalist position at the outbreak of the war. They built on the analysis of how capitalism capitalism functions, uh, as um, elaborated by Marx and Engels, they continue to explain that capitalist states are in competition with each other, try to gain a stronger position, try to get better profits for their own capitalists. And that was what it was all about in a world that was completely dominated by the different imperialist forces. 
This meant that those forces had to fight each other to advance their own uh, position. So it's no coincidence that it's during the First World War that Lenin finished his study on imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism, uh, because that was necessary to understand. Imperialism led to the First World War, so it was necessary to understand that new period, that new, um, that new stage of capitalism, the highest stage of capitalism that was uh, developing and leading to, uh, to this, uh, this, uh, this war. This understanding of how capitalism works is of course necessary to be able to stop it, to stop the barbarism, to stop, to stop the misery that is being produced by, uh, by the war. And it's like Trotsky said in his uh, text, The War and the International, he said, this First World War is the most colossal breakdown in history of an economical system that is destroyed by its own inherent contradictions. And that's an important uh, point to make. It's the contradictions of capitalism that lead to war. And the working class has to put its own method against it. And that's the method of social revol revolution. That is the only solution that, uh, that the working class can really put forward as a solution for the, for the war and its consequences for the class. What's crazy to me, Gert, is the, the uh, similarities to what happened, you know, a hundred years ago. As you're talking about this, this quote uh, was written, uh, you know, at the start of World War One. But these lessons that you're drawing out, you know, that, um, uh, you know, war is uh, inevitable in, in capitalism and, and, you know, Lenin's analysis um, of imperialism and the effects that it's going to have and the need for the working class to unite to stop it. Is that still relevant, you know, today in, in your opinion? And can you explain a little bit how, if you think so? Of course it is, yes. Um... I mean, it's important to note that the war in, U in Ukraine has its origins in the specific conditions of world capitalism today. I mean, this is the fourth episode uh, of World to Win on Ukraine, but there has been plenty of episodes discussing the specific um, uh, elements of world capitalism today. And in fact, those episodes are necessary as well to understand what is happening today in, 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 uh, in Ukraine and in this war. Uh, of course, the, the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, will still try to present what is happening as the work of just one figure or a clique around that one person of Vladimir Putin. And they have all the interest of doing so because if it's all the fault of just one person, then we don't have to look at the whole system that is behind it. If it's Putin's fault, then, well, we shouldn't look at the failure of capitalism. It's even used here in Europe to explain uh, the rising inflation. The working class today is suffering under the high prices for energy, fuel, uh, the starting inflation of the food prices. And the ruling class tried to present this as the result of Putin's war, not uh, the, the result of failing capitalism. Even when the prices were already skyrocketing before this war started. So this presentation is, is important for them and it has an effect on consciousness. Um, people go along with these ideas, but we have to explain that this is not the work of just one person. 
it's um, a specific um, a specific situation of world capitalism, a context that is there, that is being used by all involved in this conflict, not only by the Russian uh, regime around Putin, the, the NATO and US imperialism, Western imperialism, for them as well, every crisis is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to expand NATO, to spend more resources on, on the military, so they use the occasion uh, to, to strengthen their own position um, uh, in terms of, of profits, but also in terms of spheres of influence. So it's clear that a war still today means um, profits on the one hand and misery and destruction on the other hand. It means destruction of things that have been built by the hands of the working class. Uh, it also means misery. Um, one of the first uh, anti-war conferences at the time of the First World War was the Women's Conference. Uh, Clara Zetkin, who was one of the organizers, the German Marxist Clara Zetkin, she said at that meeting that hunger is the twin sister of war, um, meaning that war always comes with misery for the majority of the people, and that is still the same. But for us, it's important to explain the context today, a context of the new Cold War between the US and China, a Cold War between capitalist regimes um, that is developing at the moment that all the hope that neoliberal globalization would bring unlimited growth and harmony in the world, that hope has been shattered. The Great Recession, more than 10 years ago, broke the previous balance between the US and China and China became increasingly a challenger to the United States. The consequences of the pandemic have accelerated all the processes that were happening. And for us, it's important to make the basic point that is that the basis for this new Cold War is, is the deadlock of capitalism and the crisis of both superpowers uh, at the moment uh, when there's growing tension between the US and China a divided European Union, Russian imperialism in decay that saw some opportunities because the mass movements in Belarus and Kazakhstan didn't uh, develop further and it was possible to have uh, um, a repression to stop, those, uh, to, to stop those movements. That created the conditions in which it was possible for the Russian, Russian regime uh, to start this war. So we have to look at the whole uh, the whole system, the whole, um, we have to look at the whole movie, not just one, uh, one photograph. And we also have to make the point, of course, that the consequences for the Ukrainian people do not really count in all the geopolitical calculations on both sides, not for the Russian regime, but also not for NATO and, and Western uh, imperialism. We have to make clear that without an analysis of capitalism today, it's not possible to understand why it came to this war at this moment. And that understanding is necessary if we want to really go against it, if we really want to stop this war, and that's possible. I mean, the key to change uh, is still in mass movements against the war, is still in mass movements for a different system. I mean, revolutionary change to end the system is still what is on the agenda. And we can continue to build on 
ideas that are already present in the movement. I mean, in the protests against racism and sexism, a lot of uh, people agreed when we say that the whole system is guilty. It's not always clear for everybody what this system is. We understand it as the capitalist production system, but it's true, it's the whole system that is guilty. Also in this uh, situation of war, it's, uh, we have to change the whole system. It's still about revolutionary struggle for socialist society. That is still the, 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 the challenge that we have in front of us. So in that sense, the, the conclusions or the analysis that Marxists made more than 100 years ago are still very, very relevant today in uh, the situation of war happening in Europe. Thanks very much, Gert, for that uh, excellent analysis and, and really, you know, showing that how Marxist ideas can be dynamically applied to the present to, to make sense of a, a new situation, but in which you see many tendencies we saw also that Lenin was analysing at the turn of the century. So I think that was really good. Um, just you also mentioned about um, the historical, the importance of these ideas and the, you know, previous movements and how they've taken these ideas up to combat um, uh, other forms of oppression, other features of capitalist society. So I think there's some really interesting lessons there, both how socialists got it right using this analysis, but also, sadly, how they got it wrong. Now, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the interview about um, some of the socialist parties um, at the beginning of the 20th century. And I want to go to Connor now to just develop this out a bit more, because at that time, um, the beginning of the 20th century, you had mass socialist parties across Europe organizing the Second International, which had an enormous weight in society. Kind of hard to imagine from today's perspective, the, the sheer size. Um, and although these based themselves, many of the leading figures on the ideas of Marx and Engels, um, who were also opposed to, to war, and these figures too were anti-war in words. When World War I broke out, we saw many of them instantly bent to pressures to support their own national governments and the war effort. Um, now, it's actually that Lenin, you know, leader of the Bolsheviks and Russian Revolution, when he got news of this, he thought it was a hoax. Um, and you wouldn't blame him. <laughs> Here's a figure who based on politics, who saw Marxism and the socialist movement, uh, a, a cornerstone of that being the internationalism of the working class. Here is the figures uh, he had admired through inspiration from that were supporting their own national government in the war effort. Uh, so quite quite a shocking moment um, for Lenin, but for, for lots of other socialists and sometimes um, difficult to understand from today's perspective. So, Connor, can you um, just explain how, how could it be the case that people part of a movement committed to fighting for a world free of war, free of poverty, free of oppression, could commit such a fatal error? And then what impact did this have on the socialist movement at the time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's shocking, isn't it, when you think about it? And you can absolutely understand why Lenin thought it would, uh, or would have thought it was a hoax. In fact, so did uh, the leadership of the Romanian section of the Second International. They didn't believe the reports when they came in. Um, because right up until the war, these organizations in the Second International were across the board um, supporting, at least in words, the idea of fighting against the war. 
against war in general and for international working class solidarity. Uh, even, at, uh, you know, as close to the war as 1911, around the time of uh, the Balkan Wars at the time, uh, the Second Internationals Conference agreed an anti-war manifesto. It pointed the finger at the profits of the capitalists as the root cause of these kinds of imperialist wars. And they made the point that socialists have a duty to intervene in favor of, of ending that war and, and using all of, you know, the resources, all of the powers that we have available to us in the workers movement to, uh, to also use the, the crisis, uh, the political crisis that war generates for the ruling class to actually, uh, to build a movement and to, um, to, to build a movement to end capitalism. Uh, at the same time, the Second International was a very mixed organization. So you had revolutionaries like Lenin in it, but there were also reformists uh, and people whose aim was not even really to, uh, to end capitalism, uh, but to, to reform capitalism. Um, so when the war came, there were these huge pressures on everyone in the socialist movement, right? Uh, and that was a pressure that came from the top, from the ruling class who put forward a big amount of propaganda, um, uh, you know, saying that the leaders of the workers' organizations had to get behind their governments, not undermine the war effort. And at the same time, there was this conscious whipping up from the ruling class of nationalism in the working class itself. So exploiting, for instance, old national divisions between nations and similar kind of like populist demagogic kind of tactics to try and build working class support for the war, whether that was here in Britain to defend poor little Belgium or for defense of the fatherland or other things like this. And these big pressures, they did have a big effect on the leaders of the workers' parties in the Second International. Um, but especially it built a window for the opportunist leaders who were there already, who were already playing a role in the previous period of holding back struggle, but who were massively strengthened by this kind of national unity mood of backing the governments, this idea of a kind of need for a civil peace while the war goes on. And so they really kind of uh, gained a decisive kind of advantage in this situation where they had a kind of excuse to not be putting up a fight against the ruling class, to be holding back struggle and so on. And you did see almost kind of overnight these parties of the Second International um, under these pressures um, and with these uh, kind of, frankly, treacherous leaderships caved to the pressure uh, that they were under. And uh, from at least on paper, adhering to this idea that, you know, as, as uh, Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto, that the workers have no fatherland. Well, the Second, second International's uh, leaders uh, swallowed completely these, the exact opposite, the idea that we have to defend the fatherland. Um, and what was particularly shocking, I think, actually, especially for someone like Lenin, was uh, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party in Germany, which was kind of the, the shining star of the international workers' movement for the whole previous historical period. It was a truly mass organization, at least in theory, adhering to Marxism, and had just won a third of the vote in the previous elections. Um, it was it was really kind of the leading force of the socialist movement in Europe. But it ended up voting to fund the war um, in the Reichstag um 
so putting forward raw, war credits to fund the war. And that was agreed by the, the deputies of the SPD almost unanimously, uh, famously with uh, Karl Liebknecht, who went on to become one of the uh, leaders of the German re Revolution as one of the only deputies opposing that move. But, you you know, you called it like a fatal error, and that is literally true, right? Um, this signaled the end of the Second International, essentially, as an organization which was built to represent the interests of the international working class across borders, but had fallen apart, basically, following this turn. Parties that were once standing together based on this uh, international solidarity were now alongside their ruling classes, which are always divided uh, on national bases. Well, you know, these parties were now at war with each other, literally. Um, and uh, you had SPD members from Germany shooting French uh, Socialist Party members in the trenches with the full support of the leaders of the workers' movement in those countries. Um, you know, uh, Lenin described the Second International even before it officially dissolved as a stinking corpse. And, uh, you know, you can see why, can't you? Thanks for that, Connor. Um, I think that analysis is particularly helpful, that historical analysis to understand the situation today, where, you know, in many countries we're seeing, um, particularly Western countries, we're seeing the propaganda machine in full swing in favour for war, in favour of increasing um, intervention to, yeah, large part to do with distracting away from domestic problems. Um, but also, you know, that does have a real impact on the consciousness of working class people. Um, now, at that point in time, obviously, this is a huge betrayal for uh, the socialist movement. But there was a small but significant group of revolutionaries, of Marxists, that did remain implacable opponents to the war. Uh, can you explain who these were and what position they put forward in the context of of a war, but also the context of a betrayal of their former comrades. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, they were in this isolated position, as you said, um, but there were these scattered groups um, that maintained opposition to the war uh, in Russia, Bulgaria and Serbia, sex sections who never switched to supporting the war. Um, you know, the Romanian Marxists, despite being cracked down on by their government, began operating underground in opposition to the war at the same time. You had opponents to the war in the Social Democratic Party in Germany, Karl Liebknecht, who we just mentioned, who opposed the war, began organising alongside people like Rosa Luxemburg. In Britain, even, you had the Independent Labour Party and the British Socialist Party, who, you know, were both affiliated to the Second International and who both uh, began organising against the war. But it was you know, and this has to be stressed, it was a small group at the time, a very, very isolated group of socialists internationally facing um, up against this huge wave of kind of nationalism and reaction. But uh, they did try and coordinate. Uh, they tried to bring, uh, you know, bring themselves together internationally to be able to put forward these anti-war ideas and build a movement against war and imperialism and capitalism. Um, at the same time as the workers, uh, the workers' movement's leadership was lining up with the ruling class on these ideas. So uh, what was organised was called the Zimmerwald Conference. It took place in Zimmerwald, which is uh, where it got the name from, but basically a conference of anti-war socialists trying to maintain the idea of working-class internationalism. Um, and they put out a manifesto um, following the conference, um, an appeal to the workers' 
of the world, uh, trying to expose the war for its imperialist character and really kind of laying the first seeds of an anti-war left at the conference. You know, they kind of uh, uh, called on workers, uh, you know, in all of the belligerent countries um, to to unite. You know, they echoed the words of the Communist Manifesto, uh, workers of all countries unite. Um, and that's how they closed off their own manifesto. Um, what I think is actually more crucial, though, is um, the the grouping at the conference around Lenin and others that were kind of on the left of the conference that wanted to go even further than just this. They, you know, they thought that it would be crucial that we make direct criticism of this opportunism of the Second International that led the working class into this war um, and to flesh out how we can actually build uh, an anti-war struggle in spite of them and that this has to be linked to uh, a mass movement to overthrow this system, the system that breeds this war. Um, and it was especially kind of this group, what what was kind of called the Zimmerwald left, um, as opposed to the right at this conference who rejected the war purely out of a kind of vague pacifism rather than a kind of serious revolutionary internationalism. But it was this group that would lay the basis for the revolutionary movements that actually eventually brought an end to the First World War only four years later. Um, and Lenin especially waged a big struggle to try and convince those in the socialist movement of the importance of taking a class position in this war. He made the point that, you know, struggle doesn't die away. Uh, cap you know, all these kind of crises of capitalism don't die away when a war starts. Um, but actually these things are there waiting to break back out. And as that nationalist propaganda that we see is shown to be paper thin, um, you know, when reality workers are being killed en masse and being super exploited to support the war effort um, and being told to put up with all these kind of uh, terrible things because it's in the national interest or whatever. Um, meanwhile, the ruling class is prospering out of all this. Um, you know, it highlights the class struggle isn't overruled by war. It's actually sharpened and workers, you know, uh, have a tendency to realize that that's the case. Um, and that, you know, as a result, the struggle against the war is not about kind of an abstract struggle for peace. It's uh, about the urgent need to actually overthrow this system that's breeding these wars. And that is the case today. You know, the ruling class is trying to kind of plaster over the ongoing crises uh, of their system, the ongoing class struggle, whether that's, um, oh, I think it's actually uh, most clearly expressed in like the cost of living crisis, the crisis we're having around oil. And, you know, we've got leaders, um, you know, our government here, the Tories are saying, um, oh, well, you know, this is the price that we've got to pay to stand up to Putin. Think about those poor people in Ukrainian who are suffering so much more than you. Um, well, actually, you know, um, this cost of living crisis was going on well before the war. Um, and, uh, and, and it's not because of Putin that this is happening. It's because of the crisis. Uh, you know, likewise with the climate crisis, um, they're, you know, looking at drilling uh, in the North Sea for fossil fuels to try and get away from, um, uh, from uh, kind of uh, using Russian oil. Um, meanwhile, you know, um, putting forward no solutions to the climate crisis, essentially putting net zero in the bin. And the, you know, these problems don't go away when a war starts and people will, you know, will be aware of these things um, and, and they will, you know, lead to uh, uh, anticipation of that national unity mood, which, you know, often starts at the beginning of a war, but, you know, quickly actually um, uh, falls apart. 
Connor, you were talking about what Lenin had to do to actually convince people um, that we needed to be united against the war as opposed to having this nationalistic approach um, of, you know, defending the fatherland, as you said. Yet, you know, we when we think about the successes of Lenin and Trotsky, you oftentimes forget how difficult it was for them to have to convince people, um, you know, going against the, the, the capitalist propaganda machine. But, you know, we're talking about this war and we're talking about wars of the past and acknowledging, um, you know, the unbearable misery that war brings, you know, specifically to the working class, to the poor. Um, you know, we're seeing examples of who's really, not really, but who is um, disproportionately uh, bearing the burden of the war in Ukraine. You know, you see mothers and children having to cross the border, um, you know, while the rich um, capitalists are able to safely get out and have supplies, etc. And there's tons of destruction and bloodshed. We, we know all this when it comes to war. But also, it can contribute to the development of mass and, and sometimes revolutionary movements. And, you know, when I'm talking to people about uh, what we need in society to change, we need, you know, we talk about it on the show all the time in the ISA, International Socialist Alternative, we talk about it, we need a socialist revolution. And, and, and people say, well, well, how can we get there? That's, that's daunting. Um, but it is possible um, to see these revolutionary mov moments come out of something so terrible like war. Um, and, you know, one example that I've heard, or not example, but quote, it seems like we're using a lot of quotes in this episode, so I'm going to continue, um, is war is the midwife of revolution. Um, so, Connor, can you talk about uh, some examples throughout history uh, where this actually played out? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is uh, it's a quote that really ties to so many revolutionary movements throughout history. So, I mean, you could go right back to even the Paris Commune, the first time workers really, um, you know, tried to take power in history. Uh, and, you know, this was a situation of war as well between uh, France and uh, Prussia, uh, which was a, a country at the time. Um, but it was in this context of the war that workers in Paris took power, um, spurred on by the crisis generated by that war. I, I mean, most importantly, obviously, I think is uh, the Russian Revolution um, and the revolutions that swept Europe following the First World War, like we've been talking about. Um, you know, the Zimmerwald left were absolutely right that the working class were going to turn against their respective classes and that uh, and and their war and that the war would be, as you say, the midwife of revolution. Um, and that it was the revolutionary working class who were actually the only force capable of seriously putting an end to that war as well. And, uh, you know, you began to see the, the workers in Russia uh, was, were, were seeing that this was the case. Um, they ended up, of course, overthrowing the Tsar, uh, demanding an end to the war. Uh, the provisional government that was put in place after the Tsar abdicated wasn't able to provide this um, because it was, you know, a continuation of capitalism and imperialism. Um, and it was actually only uh, a socialist revolution, only the workers coming to power that, that was able to end that war. Uh, and when um, when the Bolsheviks came to power on the back of that revolution, they were able to actually follow through on that promise and did end Russia's involvement in the war. 
Um, but, it, you know, it's the same all over Europe. In Germany, uh, the war finally ended um, in the Western Front when the workers there also overthrew their monarch, the Kaiser, um, and very nearly had themselves a, a, a socialist revolution as well. In Italy, uh, you had what was called the Two Red Years, uh, this kind of revolutionary uprising that broke out in Hungary, in Ireland, all over Europe uh, following the Second World War. There were these huge uprisings of working class people um, who'd, you know, been fighting in this war and, you know, kind of been at the, the sharp end of all of the worst aspects of capitalism, all the most vicious aspects of it, um, and, uh, you know, weren't prepared to put up with this uh, system anymore. Um, and I think, you know, you can even make a, a certain comparison, actually, to this process that we talk about uh, in more recent times as well. This isn't necessarily a war. But when the pandemic um, hit uh, and there was a similar drive of kind of propaganda, this move towards national unity, uh, a kind of whipping up of this idea that we're all in this together in a very similar way to a war, we made the point that that, that unity um, that, that's uh, being kind of put forward by the ruling class is, you know, it's an illusion. Uh, that the real class differences at play in this situation would break through in an explosive way and you'd see big struggles. And it was actually, you know, only a few months later um, that this idea that we all have the same interest was pretty much shattered uh, following the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, which swept the world. Um, and, of course, were the biggest social movement in U.S. history. Um, and then, you know, Following that, it's just been uh, a series of huge struggles uh, here in the UK, uh, directly actually in response to the government's measures in, in total contrast um, to the idea of national unity over this, people fighting for workplace safety, um, for decent pay during the pandemic. But also, of course, like mass movements to overthrow corrupt and oppressive governments in Latin America, in Myanmar, and elsewhere. And I think, you know, that is actually an example of a similar process that we see where, you know, the, these kinds of um, uh, ideas of national unity and these kinds of uh, phenomena, whether it's war or, as we've seen, like even a pandemic, actually, um, you know, those ideas do break down and, and very explosive struggles can come through that have kind of been building up um, uh, behind the scenes uh, during those kind of periods. Um, I think that's actually a big part of it, you know, that these struggles do take on an explosive character when they've been bottled up like that. And, uh, and I think when we talk about revolution uh, or, or war being the midwife of revolution, that's a big part of it. Basically, what you're saying is it's it's not necessarily just war leading to revolution, but this sort of um, uh, uh, oppression that the working class is feeling uh, pushes them into a fight back. And, you know, you gave examples of the pandemic, Black Lives Matter movement. And I mean, even in the in the labor movement, is that what you're saying, Connor? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely true. Um, obviously, we're not saying that you need a war to have a revolution, but these kinds of uh, phenomena, uh, you know, these, these crises that are generated by this system that culminate in things like war are often, you know, the kind of spark that, that can uh, bring these movements about to actually overthrow the system. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that those historical examples are a powerful antidote to, to some of the, you know, very real pessimism people might feel right now and a certain helplessness that 
similar, I, did, I applied the example of the pandemic was so good. What's going on? How can this change? Uh, and, and I think likewise, when there is ordinary working class people across the world now are looking at what's going on in the Ukraine and looking at the brutal invasion and want to help in some way, but, but can, I think can draw quite understandably uh, pessimistic conclusions about um, you know, what, is, what can be done and you know, that there's no way out. But I think you know, we discuss particularly about the radicalization and the, the, the anti-war you know, sentiment that exists in Russia today. All the thousands of activists have been arrested um, and I think that gives those historical examples, give us a bit of a perspective of how, yes, this initial national unity can turn into its opposite, initial support uh, for, for the ruling class um, in, in the midst of this nationalist wave can actually give way to, yeah, people draw much more revolutionary conclusions. And I think we're already seeing elements of that today, but I think, yeah, um, it's, a, it's really, I think, helpful to, to look back at, you know, uh, these historical examples but I actually want to go to Gert now and ask him uh, about a more recent example um, Connor brought us right up to the present but Gert I know you were an active participant and organizer in the movement very powerful movement that developed in opposition to the US invasion of Iraq um, which I think yeah had a huge impact on the consciousness of, of millions of young people millions of workers across the world and we saw millions of them taken to the streets um, in mass protests and demos. But sadly, that wasn't enough to apply the brakes in the war machine. So I want to know, yes, on the one hand, we see um, how powerful mass movements can bring an end to a war. But here we saw millions of people on the street and, and it went ahead. So what were the main differences between this and some of the examples Connor outlined? Uh, and what were, what were we arguing for at the time? What were LSPPSL arguing for at that time in terms of what was the path forward? Well, first of all, I, it should be said that the anti-war movement of 2003 didn't start immediately. I mean, it, it happened after the 9-11 attacks in the United States, which killed thousands of American working people, which caused a shock amongst the working class. And the American ruling class used this shock to launch its war on terror, first in Afghanistan, then in Iraq. In, at the time of the, the war in Afghanistan, there was a lot of confusion amongst people because they were still under the influence of the shock of 9-11. It even put a bit of a break on the anti-globalization movement that was at that moment um, happening, which was the first movement uh, which was more explicitly anti-capitalist after a decade of mostly one-issue movements. Um, it, it had its high point in, in the summer of 2001 uh, with massive protests in Genoa where uh, our international organization sent uh, a busload of uh, activists uh, to, to Italy to participate. We wanted to repeat this at, at the end of uh, 2001 uh, in Brussels uh, during protest against the European summit. But the war in Afghanistan had a bit of a put a bit of a break on the anti-globalization uh, movement despite all the efforts that we did to continue this movement but it gradually became clear that the war was not about democracy was not about fighting reactionary terrorists 
most of them who had been supported before by the US, by US imperialism. But it became very clear that it was about the economical interests. And in the case of Iraq, it was very clear that it was about oil, that uh, this was a war on oil uh, for, for the access to oil. So the invasion of Iraq was prepared for a longer time and the protests against it grew very quickly. Uh, the, uh, there was an international day of protest in February 2003, one month before the war actually started. And this was probably the biggest international day of action ever, with uh, literally millions of people demonstrating against the war uh, all over the world, um, which was incredible, an incredible event to participate in. And we intervened in this with uh, the youth committees that we had built up in the anti-globalization movement, committees that were modeled on the anti-racist committees we had built up in the 1990s when there was an anti-racism movement uh, in, in, in Europe. Uh, so we, we, took, we took lessons from what we had done before to continue uh, organizing mainly young people at that moment, hundreds of young people with a program orientated towards the working class and the need of, of, of system change. We made it clear that mass protest was important and that young people could play a big role in it, that young people could be a dynamic factor in it, but, uh, but that to really stop the war, it was necessary to bring the struggle to the workplaces with strikes, with bringing down the ports, breaking, breaking up the logistical operation that every war still is today. That sort of things was necessary, and that still is the case. I mean, now there are some reports, we have to see what is exactly, um, what is exactly happening, but there are some reports about sabotage actions by railway workers in Belarus which could be interesting and important huh? because it brings it, it has the potential to bring um, the resistance against war to the workplace and to uh, to a place where it's possible to stop the whole military machine uh, of of taking place the anti-war movement in 2003 made it clear that it's not enough to take that that the class the working class is taking to the streets even with millions of people, that's not enough. In order to win, we need strikes. We, need to, we, we have to bring down the whole war machine. We try to popularize this idea by launching school and student, school student strikes um, uh, on day X, which was the beginning of the war. There was a whole campaign of building up towards uh, uh, student strikes on that day which were very successful. Thousands of young people participated in, in those protests for which we took the initiative in Belgium and uh, internationally participated in it um, uh, as well. But, I mean, it didn't come to a revolutionary break with capitalism. That was the, the, the big problem. I mean, it was an issue of consciousness, uh, an issue of, of program. I mean, consciousness was still... Um, widely influenced by the whole neoliberal ideological offensive of the 1990s. The working class came to the streets to protest against the war, but not really conscious as its own role as a class. And that was the element that was, that was missing 
to to be able to really stop this war. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that as revolutionary socialists, we we think well, consciousness is not ready yet, so we we stand back and wait a little bit. That's not how uh, how revolutionary socialists uh, must act. It's also not how consciousness will be brought forward. Uh, we took all the opportunities that, that uh, were present. We took every step that we could take to strengthen the movement, to help us move forward afterwards. That's what we have done with our organization uh, for decades. I mean, the anti-globalization movement was strengthened because of the experience with the anti-racism um, movement in the 1990s. Anti-globalization movement strengthened the anti-war committees. I mean, it's the same process as, as I mean, the experience of a, on a different scale and a different, um, I mean, you cannot really compare it, but learning from history is, uh, is what is necessary. I mean, the, the Russian Bolsheviks always remained optimistic, even at the darkest hours of the war, because they had seen the experience of the Paris Commune. They had seen that war could lead to revolution. They knew that this was the only solution, and they took every possible step towards that. Every opportunity, they took it. That's what we did. Of course, not on the same level. We couldn't make it to a revolutionary break with capitalism, but we tried to build the, the forces that were able to take a step in that direction. And I think that still is a lesson that we have to take in every movement. Even when we have to go against the stream, we have to take every opportunity to take steps forward uh, with the clear aim of overthrowing the system that is leading to war and misery for the majority of the people. Thanks very much, Gret. It was great to get that first-hand account of, of how that movement played out and particularly what, what revolutionary socialists were calling for at the time. And I actually think it comes full circle to the first uh, point that you made, which rooted the explanation of war in an understanding of capitalism, the system. And actually, from that understanding, you, you take the strategy to stop it. And that points to the role of the working class, because it's, it's our role, us to make society run. It's us who create um, the profits for the, for the capitalists. And it's us who has the potential to bring that system to a halt. And I think bringing that into the anti-war movement is absolutely, absolutely key. And unfortunately, there wasn't a basis or it was the element that was lacking, as you said, um, in the anti-war movement in opposition to the invasion of Iraq. But I think it's something that can gain an echo today. And already, you know, we saw some elements of that, particularly workers in Kent refusing um, to um, yeah, handle uh, Russian oil. Um, and I think that's something young people are more open to today. So I think there's packed full of lessons. Uh, this whole episode, I've definitely learned a lot. Toya, what about you? What's um, obviously we've been discussing historical examples, but I feel like a lot of them are very easy applicable to today. So any particular ones that stand out for you that is helping you make sense of the current situation? I mean, you know, one theme that we talked about a lot today was this. Uh, understanding and acknowledgement of who the enemy actually is. Um, you know, both of our guests explained uh, the problems of um, World War One, where, you know, the socialists in Europe particularly were um, unable to really, uh, 
I guess, understand uh, who it was they should be uniting and fighting against. And I feel like I still see that today, you know, um, talking with my coworkers. It's hard because um, not only like the whole, uh, I've said this term already today, but the, you know, propaganda machine, like not only like, you know, the seven o'clock news that is telling you Russia's bad, Putin's bad, um, but also just seeing exactly what Russia uh, what the Russian military is doing to the Ukrainian people, it's understandable uh, for, you know, the thought process to just be uh, uh, Russia's bad, we have to fight back against Russia, as opposed to taking a step back and looking at the, um, you know, larger imperialist forces at play, the role um, that, you know, U.S. capitalism has played in, 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 in getting us to this point. I think it's very difficult um, and it's a daunting thing to think about. So for me... Um, in order to really build uh, a true anti-war movement, first thing we have to do is acknowledge who the enemy is, who we're fighting against, and that's capitalism. Um, it's not these individual nations uh, that are a particular problem in this particular uh, moment in history. Um, you know, and for me, uh, you know, listening to podcasts like Connor's Revolutionary Ideas or reading revolutionary newspapers like Gert um, uh, produces in Belgium, I think helps to build that analysis. And I encourage people to to check out the International Socialist Alternative website to read our analysis on, you know, the bigger players um, here and what's needed to fight back. Um, that's my two cents, Dara. Yep. Yeah, definitely a lot there. Um, what about... Uh... Connor and Gert, Connor, what about you? For you, um, some of the main takeaway lessons from these movements of the past and applying them to today? Well, I think I agree with what Toya's said. It's it's thinking about who the real enemy is. You know, is our enemy uh, the Russian workers that are also, you know, looking for uh, an end to the cost of living crisis that are, uh, you know, facing government repression, many of whom are actively going out on the streets trying to oppose this war? Well, I think, you know, Hopefully, it's uh, it's something that uh, you don't have to be a revolutionary internationalist to say. Well, clearly not. Um, but actually, you know, you do have to be a revolutionary internationalist to to say, um, well, okay. So, what do we do about this? How do we build a movement to uh, to end this war? Um, and I think you know that for me is one of the uh, one of the key lessons. I thanks, Connor and Gareth. I know you've already kind of given us some. Uh, examples, but I don't know if there is anything else you'd like to highlight that you think is particularly important uh, for the current situation today. Well, I think most important things have been said, but it's, it's clear that class contradictions do not disappear with war. This whole idea of national unity is, is uh, used by the ruling class uh, to get support uh, for, for, for them in, in their war, which is only in their interest. It's not in our interest. We have to, I, we are faced with a choice. Um, Rosa Luxemburg already said we, we have the choice between socialism and barbarism. And unfortunately, a lot of people can, have, can imagine themselves what barbarism looks like. And some might, may feel a bit, a certain despair, a bit, you know, have it difficult uh, with what is happening today and that's even strengthened with the inflation with the economical hardship and and all the problems that are happening we have to explain this is this is the system this is how this system is working um, we have no other choice than to overthrow this system 
we can be optimistic about this uh, because it's it's not our system that is in crisis. It's not our system that is showing its failures. It's that system. It's the capitalist system. We have the we have the solution for that. We have we see the possibilities for this, and we have to to highlight every element of the potential of of the working class of working class solidarity uh, against all the wars war in Ukraine in Yemen Syria Libya uh, the occupation of Palestine um, I, the list is long and is just making the point that um, people can imagine what barbarism looks like but we have to imagine what socialism looks like um, and we can see small things of this, the solidarity with the refugees today that is bigger. Uh, that's an element that we can see. In the First World War, after a few months, uh, when soldiers quick, uh, for a short period left the trenches uh, at Christmas 1914 to play football with each other, the little peace in the Great War that showed some solidarity from below, which was quickly stopped from above, but elements of solidarity from below, working class solidarity, um, can be seen and are just the, f the, the first signs of what is to come. Uh, wars show what capitalism has to offer. Those elements of solidarity show what we will have to offer with the working class through our struggle for an international socialist alternative. So we have all the reasons to be hopeful, to be optimistic, despite all the terrible things that are happening today because of how capitalism is organized. Thanks for leaving us on a good note, Gert, because sometimes when you're talking about this stuff, it's hard to feel optimistic. You know, it's it's um, it's important that we keep that in mind, that a, a different type of world is possible, a different type of economy is possible, um, you know, especially in the midst of, of this... Um, you know, insane war that's happening in Ukraine. So I want to thank both of you for coming on the show uh, with us today. And we, we hope to have you on again real soon. Well, Dara, what did you think? Yeah, it was excellent. Um, two great guests that I think I could, I could listen to speak for, for a lot longer. And I think I have to admit, um, some of my personal favorites of, of previous World Twin episodes are the historical, more theoretical ones. So it was a pleasure to do this one um, and look forward to do more if if you'll have me back of course so i don't want to count my chickens before they have well it was great having you on we of course miss yara but um yeah it was it was it was a great episode and remember if you haven't heard our previous three episodes on the crisis in ukraine um make sure you tune in there whether it's youtube or however you listen to your podcasts and now we're gonna do our shout out of the week this week, we are shouting out the 4,000 Minneapolis educators in the U.S. who are out on strike, fighting for better working conditions, fighting for pay raises, um, fighting back against inflation and, and bad working conditions. Um, we send huge amounts of solidarity to them, um, and hopefully we will talk a little bit more about it on a future show. So thank you so much for tuning in to World to Win this week, and we will see you next time. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. 
Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight, when they fight, when they fight, solidarity.